0: Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.
1: When the preacher stepped onto the platform, Eliza found herself so pressed between the bodies of her family that she couldn't see the men at the front, the barn filled with a sea of sound, the rising of the preacher's voice, the lilt of the hymns, the rhythm under the music, the subterranean rumble of people murmuring, the warmth of the golden barn, all worked on the old woman's senses. Drifting on a tide of sensations, she sensed vague promises in the preacher's tone. The gist seemed to be that everyone could depend on the Lord's forgiveness if they went converted, even the old lags, or so Eliza understood those who'd made a few mistakes in their time, which included just about everyone. She'd always assumed she'd earned a rest in the next life, after all of her work and trials in this one. This rest would surely be forthcoming in heaven, that's what she'd always expected. But now she wasn't so sure. Was there something else she needed to do? The sounds filling the barn turned into a humming, a soft murmur of indistinguishable words. Blinking watery eyes and trying to see what was happening, Eliza's attention was caught by Susanna wriggling beside her, trying to stand up. She saw Echo grab the baby from her mother's lap and none too soon. Eliza gazed up into Susanna's face, startled at the strange expression on it, and reached for her daughter's wrist. Hi, what is up with you? she asked. Susanna's eyes were glittering and streaming tears, but of course Susanna was always crying. Her mouth hung open. Echo managed to pull her mother back onto the hay bale. Hey, Susanna, what has got hold of you? Eliza asked again. Before he received an answer, ructions broke out at the front of the barn. Women began moaning and crying, and one or two seemed to collapse. Many began to push to the front, to the row of chairs set out there. Men shuffled around the perimeter of the scene like sheepdogs who'd lost control of the flock. A bubble of glee rose up in Eliza's throat as the women took over the show. One woman and then another and another stood and pushed forwards, the men standing back with expressions of awe and astonishment. "'Susanna struggled to her feet again, "'and Eliza managed to get upright too, "'hanging on to her daughter's wrist. "'Ay, Susanna, let's go,' she hissed, "'and the two of them began to stagger "'through the crowd towards the front. "'A wind seemed to be blowing from somewhere, "'whipping the skirts of their dresses "'against their thighs. "'It was hard to see anything much, "'the way the lights flickered. "'The singing began again. "'The Lord will come, the earth shall quake, "'the hills their fixed seat forsake. "'Ay, we're going to be saved, Susanna!' Eliza cried in delight.
0: Annette Higgs is a writer born in Tasmania and living in Sydney. Annette's short work has appeared in anthologies and literary journals in Australia, the USA, the UK and India. Today I'm talking to Annette Higgs about her first novel, On a Bright Hillside in Paradise, the winner of the 2022 Penguin Literary Prize. Annette, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Hi, thanks very much for having me.
0: Congratulations on taking out the 2022 Penguin Literary Prize. That must have been a reassuring moment as a first-time novelist.
1: Absolutely. Uh, It's so validating to have your work not only read and shortlisted, but then to actually win against many other contenders who are no doubt fabulous, and then to be actually published. It's, It's dreamlike.
0: First novels often have a long history. How long has the idea been with you, and what did it take to turn it into a great story?
1: I'd say that the idea has been with me since I first heard the story of the coming of the Christian Brethren into Kentish, which was probably the 80s or 90s. It's a real story. Um, And I'd known about it in my family history for years and years and years. And it came to me that it would make a great uh, novel project when I needed a project for uh, enrolling in a Doctorate of Arts at the University of Sydney. And from that moment on, it took three solid years of slog <laughs> to turn that um interesting spark into a novel and many experiments in how best to structure it and how best to tell the story.
0: Well it does have a unique structure and it's set in a unique place too. The story takes place in 1874 on the Kentish Plains in northwest Tasmania. What is your sense of that time and of that place?
1: I find my connection to the place Uh, really visceral, actually. My mother was born and grew up there and her mother and her mother and back through the generations of my family. They were original white settlers in that area. And they are still there, some of the family, and they love the mountain, the connection to Mount Rowland outside of the town of Sheffield and the town of Paradise, which is a real town is very visceral. Um, And I felt that too. I went there frequently as a child. I know the area well. And it's not only about that particular area, but also something about being Tasmanian, I think, (laughs) and growing up in an island. And many people have spoken, written about that as an experience as well. And I think that has fed into my um, connection with that landscape too.
0: Well, life in paradise is hardly a paradise. Your characters are people descended from convicts, living with hardship and really barely avoiding famine. What's your research uncovered about the lived experience in the area around paradise?
1: The experiences I write about in the novel, the details of their family life and how they fed themselves and how they scratched an existence out of the land, all comes from local histories, oral stories, I'm confident that that's what it was like, which is just extraordinary to think of in some ways. And yet they loved the place they were in as well. And that too comes through from the oral story. So many of them are told with humour, with a sort of uh, stoicism and an optimism for the future, and yet not a kind of driving ambition to get out of there, but rather to stay there. Um, and to settle and make homes. And the historian James Boyce has written about a tradition of homemaking in the back blocks of Tasmania that often is overlooked or not recognized and how strong that tradition is. I feel like that whole tradition has passed down even to me, you know, an urban person <laughs> in in the 21st century, still that tradition of homemaking that came through the women of my family. I, I hope that comes through in the novel too.
0: One of the big events in On a Bright Hillside in Paradise, when the Christian Brethren evangelists arrive, bearing a very powerful message. The lives of your characters are changed. Um, But before we look at your characters, I'm fascinated by the history of the Christian Brethren in Tasmania. It was part of that revivalist movement in the 19th century. But what did it promise for the people of rural Tasmania
1: at that time? There's a lot of scholarship actually on why the brethren were so successful <laughs> in Tasmania and particularly in northwestern Tasmania. The northwest coast of Tasmania was once one of the highest concentrations of Christian brethren in the world, <laughs> which seems slightly amazing when you think that there weren't even any proper roads in the 1870s. These men had to borrow horses and ride over muddy tracks, and they came from England and Ireland and Scotland. And they went to Tasmania in the back blocks where there were no roads. I I can't even figure why they even were there. (laughs) But when they arrived there, the people just lapped up, lapped up the message they had to bring. And they would walk miles in terrible weather through terrible bush and muddy tracks to go to these big revival meetings. And part of it, as you say, was that revival movement in the 19th century where these religious revivalists who held big meetings um, in tents and barns were like the celebrities of their day. and their, their doings were reported in newspapers and so on. But there are also many other elements, and I think one of them is the, especially with the Christian brethren, who have no priests, no hierarchy, uh, only two rituals, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They don't have any other uh, set ways of doing anything. So there's an element of independence. When they began a Christian brethren assembly in a particular area, the people that joined that assembly were independent from any hierarchical church structure. And that was one of the reasons they were hiding out in the bush, these ex-convicts. They did not like the prejudice of the towns. They didn't like the way the Anglican structured church, which was so often their tradition because they were often English. Um, That was the pious tradition they'd grown up in and been raised in. But those churches wanted... Wanted them to live in a certain way and they condemned them for being convicts or the children of criminals and so on. So, when the brethren arrived and said, You can have your Christian faith without any of that, I feel like that must have been quite attractive on one level. Plus, it also, uh, their message offered redemption, it offered uh, meeting loved ones on the other side, and so many died, they lost children. So that message was strong. Their message also was that you should join together in a group and be an assembly. And that joining together helped those bush people create their own communities. And the existence of the community was vital to their survival in the bush, both psychically and physically and in every other way, helping out each other and being together socially and so on.
0: The story is told through the eyes of five members of the Hatton family, Eliza, Jack, Susanna, Eddie, and Echo, and it was particularly interesting to contemplate the variations in perspective across three generations of this family. What was your purpose in exploring these sometimes vastly different perspectives on the arrival of the Christian brethren?
1: Well, I wanted from the beginning to have the viewpoint of the three generations of women. Um, Eliza's an old woman now, and she was born in England and married to a convict, and her father was a convict. She was also a real person, interestingly, and I've left her with her same name and her husband. And sometimes um, people read the book in Tasmania, and they contact me, and they go, we're related, (laughs) because they recognise their their ancestor. And then her daughter Susanna is based on my great-great-grandmother, who was, um, you know, the heart of the family home. She had so many children, she could barely remember how many. And yet she ran a home in the bush, and that's the tradition I wanted to write about. And then Echo, the daughter, inherits this. And I didn't want to write her as an ahistorical kind of modern girl who wanted to read and write and get out of there. She learned to read and write, but what she wanted was to build her own version of that home in the bush with her own family. And then the two boys, the two boys are are just the point at which the brethren... Uh, were not necessarily a unifying element I mean it wasn't all straightforward one of the boys loves the message laps it up is converted um, runs with it takes everything from it that he needs the other boy is a skeptic from day one and that too is actually a true story and part of what sparked my my interest in writing the story. In the back of a local history, I found a reference to this family, my family. And the local historian, let's give him credit, his name is Alan Dyer. He's an old gentleman in Tasmania who gave me an interview as well. And in the back of his book, he had a he had an appendix with a note and it said, The whole family was converted except one son. <laughs> and I thought, there's a story there.
0: Eliza is a great storyteller herself. But as a product of the Anglican tradition, her attitude is rather mixed. Is the arrival of the Christian brethren a challenge to her faith?
1: With that, I wanted to bring out what it must have been like to be an exile from England, to come from England with your own folklore, your own pious tradition, with the Anglican church just being part of the atmosphere, really, not even a choice. It was just the way the world was. And to be landed and find yourself late in life, sitting in the Tasmanian bush, where all the animals are different, where the stars in the sky are different, where the local folk stories, I suppose you could call them, are different, and you have to adapt. And she has one long section where she tells a folk story to her grandchildren, and she gets completely mixed up between the leprechauns that her Irish mother told her about and what's lurking in the Tasmanian bush. And a similar thing is going on with her conception of the afterlife and religion. Uh, There's what she's been told in the Anglican church, which would have included that being a convict was not on the right side of the Lord. (laughs) Yet uh, here is somebody offering a different hope. But the immersion really brings them up short too, because this actual physical bodily experience of going out to your own creek and wading into the water and being dunked is both an incredible show for them all, and also something very physical and visceral and public about, you know, proclaiming where you stand on all of this. And Eliza's not quite so sure about that.
0: Jack and Eddie are the ones that seem to be very impressed by the show, but they come to different conclusions about what these events have meant to them.
1: Yes, they're almost um, in a sort of vague biblical illusion, a bit Abel and Cain, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, one one is easily persuaded if I can put it that way and he embraces a sort of leadership role and he he goes for it and the other retreats even further to the bush and his sister wonders why why you don't just join in with all the new Christians in the new assembly because then you'll be part of the community but for him that's not enough it's an interesting exploration about Teenage boys, I think, on the one hand, I mean, they're young men when the story takes place, but they might as well be men by this stage because that's the kind of life uh, and work that they have to do. But they're still uh, inside adolescence and they're still at that phase of um, enthusiasms one way or the other in life and making inside internal choices. It's fascinating.
0: It's fascinating too with Echo. She's the third generation of the Hattons. She's much seems to be much more curious about her surroundings and she is perhaps the most literate of the group. She's also a little fearful too. She's a young girl. What does the future hold for Echo?
1: Yes, Echo is a character that um, helps the reader, I think, I hope, think about the future of this family what the next generation is going to look like because she has these characteristics that leap forward a little bit in that she can read and write. She is curious. She wonders what's beyond Tasmania at one point. She queries her mother quite a lot about what's involved in running a family and building a house and raising all the children. She gets irritable with the children. She has her own quirky characteristics she wonders what's going on with her friends. So she's curious about the world around her. But, again, that's a characteristic of a of a girl her age, 14, 15 years old. Um, but the things that happen to her do nod a little bit to the next generation on and what that world is going to look like the next generation on, which is basically my great-grandmother. <laughs> so it's fascinating to me. I hope it, I hope it is on the page too. There's also
0: an overarching narrative in your story which transcends the concerns of the individual and the hardship and sometimes tragedy they face. And that is in the sense of community that is a product of the teaching of the Christian brethren. Is this their legacy?
1: Very much so. I think it's a it's a standard story, isn't it? The stranger arrives and what happens? <laughs> These events did happen. These preachers did arrive there. Um, and the effect uh, is reverberated. There's still... Um, a descendant community of that original assembly in Sheffield, as there are in many communities along the coast. And I did want to write about a community as well as a family. Um, And although it's not easy to populate the novel with lots of extra characters, (laughs) I wanted to give a sense of of the family living amongst others. And I'm glad that came through for you. But I think, too, it's definitely a theme that, their reaction to the Brethren um, brought them together uh, and helped them create a community, whether it was a a little closed community for a while, uh, it was a survival mechanism as well, both uh, survival in the physical trials they went through and also the social situation they were in as convict descendants in the 1870s. It was before Australia was federated. Uh, It was before anybody in the towns in and Demon's Land, then Tasmania, cared tuppence about what was happening in the bush. Um, They had no roads for years after this period. They had a railway before they had a road. They had to try and sell their produce to survive. How are you going to do that without some kind of glue to hold your community together? And bizarre though it is, I think it was the Christian brethren that gave them that catalyst.
0: It's a fascinating slice of Australian history. And Annette Higgs, thanks so much for joining me on The Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I love talking about the the family in paradise and I hope people enjoy reading about them.
0: I've been talking to Annette Higgs about her first novel, On a Bright Hillside in Paradise. It's published by Vintage and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au